This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Lotto. Thank you for listening. You can always catch us on 99.1 FM in the Portland Metro on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or tune in at your convenience wherever you find your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. I'm speaking with Leslie Barnes today, the director of the Preschool and Early Learning Division at Multnomah County. In that role, she is overseeing the Preschool for All initiative, a program approved by voters in November of 2020 that will provide tuition-free universal preschool for three and four-year-olds in Multnomah County. The program is being funded by a personal income tax on high-income earners and has received significant attention regionally and nationally as a progressive upstream investment in children and families. Leslie, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me here this morning. I'm glad to be with you. I know Preschool for All passed last November. You took on the leadership role for the county in April of this year. Talk about how you came to be connected to the effort to pass preschool for all. Let's start there. Sure. You know, my work in early learning spanned almost 25 years, and I was connected to the effort through my work at the CCRNR. So I was supporting family child care providers specifically around what was called quality rating and improvement at the time. And I've done similar work in the community. And from the perspective of supporting providers, working at my own childcare facility, working at other national chains, and just a lot of the advocacy work I've done on behalf of providers, they reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to be a part of one of our work groups to study, like, what are the things that we really need to think about when we're thinking about high quality early learning for young children in Multnomah County? So, of course, you know, I raised my hand and jumped right in because it's something that's been lacking for a long time. And over the span of my career, I've really seen how our early learning system has really not supported families or providers. So I knew I was the perfect person really to be there because I have a lot of perspective on that from a family as a parent as well. So I brought all that to the table right. doing that work. Talk a little bit about the passage of Preschool for All. There was such a sort of groundswell of effort that went into the passage, lots of parent and family engagement and voice as part of that process. Talk about what that was like. I think it's really groundbreaking because a lot of times we see systems come in place and they don't really ask the consumer, what do you really need and what does this really look like? Yeah. So to have families there, to have the support of community, folks like myself, all the people that really work in the space from schools to private sector, child care, public sector, you know, all of those partners had start to be at the table and really think about all the parts. And I feel like we had been siloed for a long time and it gave us the opportunity to be in the room at the same time to have a champion at the county and Commissioner Vega Peterson. It really was this magical moment where we said, you know, well, let's do this right and let's not compromise and let's really think about equity at the heart of this. I think that was also very unique in our efforts and really designing this to be successful. Talk about what that means. Explain what it means to focus on equity as part of the efforts to get preschool for all passed and then what that means for the program itself. Right. So when you think about the workforce specifically, really early learning and childcare has really been built by black and brown people. And as we professionalize these kinds of efforts, sometimes we forget the people that really were entrusted with that work from the beginning. So what does it look like to have them be successful as business owners, to invite them to the table, to think about language, to think about the ways that 
early learning can be different from really dominant cultural ways of looking at quality. Right. So what does it mean for me as a parent to choose quality from my own lens? And so how do we take that and then bring it to the system and really try to make the things match or throw out the things that don't really match? We want to make a system that works for them and not try to force them into a system. And so also then prioritizing children that are really furthest from this opportunity and really need those early impacts now. And that's another way to look at equity. So as we're making a universal system, who are the children that need it now that don't have access now? And then maybe the other families will be waiting a little bit longer as we implement that. But really, we have to make sure these providers are successful and that we're not putting barriers in their way. So I think that's how we're looking at equity and really kind of, you know, throwing out what isn't working, putting in things that do work and really listening to those voices to kind of drive the work as well. Yeah. During that process leading up to the passage of Preschool for All, were there key voices or key moments that stood out that exemplify what the effort was all about? I mean, really when the things like, so so that if you're someone who's a practitioner of the work and it really aligns with what folks like the PAC at Elm were saying, those parents all the voices coalesced, you know, they all came together in a way that really affirmed the work that we were doing. And so as it came out, after it passed, I mean, parents were really excited for the work. I mean, people thought we would have preschool the next day, which fortunately we couldn't because we need to implement a program. But I think I'll just say this, the moment when it passed really affirmed because I was just shocked that it did. Right. You know, we're coming out of COVID. I just really thought people would think, gosh, in the midst of this economic downturn, how are we going to add another tax, right? We're all struggling, but they saw that this investment was really, I think, a way to bring the economy back also, in addition to all the supports that we're building into the system for young children and their families. So, I mean, that moment watching it pass, I was shocked. I shed a tear. You know, so many people like did. A dream <laughs> and it had strong support. It didn't pass narrowly. Oh, man. Man, I mean, 64%, yeah. I want to say, uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 64%. I mean, so that's overwhelming. And people that may not even have young children, they saw it as an investment. We're really looking at, you know, what are the ways that we support families? I mean, when I said equity earlier, like, what are the ways that we can empower families to make great decisions, decisions that they want to make for their families as they go into the K-12 world? What are some of the tools that they could be gaining in the early learning childcare preschool space before they even get there? So there's just a lot that we can do in this effort. I think it's going to be really unique and exciting. Just for our listeners, you mentioned PAC and ELM, and could you just clarify mm-hmm. that who they are and right. their role? Right. So Early Learning Multnomah is our early learning hub, and they've been a key partner. And they convene a group called the Parent Accountability Council. And that is a diverse group of parents that really drove the work. They speak multiple languages. I've had the opportunity since my role also to really kind of visit, you know, look in on their Zoom meetings and just really kind of a larger family of diverse people that say, these are the things that we value when we're looking for preschool. These are things I need. I need preschool that comes at odd hours. Some people don't think of preschool in that way, but we're talking about social emotional learning and getting children ready for kindergarten. That can happen at different times of the day. We have to support when these families are working also. So it all comes together and they were key. Their voice was very strong. And I think that made it very unique as well. Tell me where things are at today, because I know the plans at least at one point included being able to offer maybe 
500 to 1,000 slots by 2022-23. So I'm curious to know if that's on track. And then I think the goal of offering universal access was 2031. So give us an update about where things are at now. Oh, where we're at today, I mean, as you said earlier, I started in April. And so we immediately began to, you know, find folks to build out this team with a real strong eye on equity and racial equity specifically. So we have, you know, hired key members of staff. We now have 12 staff, key roles. And really right now, and also another piece of this is really partnering with, with community agencies like the Child Care Resource Center for Mononoa County. And they're really going to be working with the preschool community on quality coaching and that piece as well. So getting those contracts out and finding also diverse coaches to connect with these diverse providers that we're asking to do this work along with us. And so right now we've been able to get ready to invite people to apply for slots. And so there's two ways that the community can do that. And that's one's called a pathways program, one's called a pilot program. And so those are pilots are people that are ready for slots and pathways is an effort to say, hey, you know, I might be interested in this. I may not be ready. I may not be licensed yet, but I would like to connect with a coach to think about my practices and how I'm going to invite families in. And so that's where we're at now. There's actually applications open today. Depending on what kind of provider you are, there's a different kind of application for you. We also have invited another community partner, MISO, that's going to be our intermediary organization. They're really going to be key at supporting these small businesses be successful in interacting with a large organization like the county. Right. So a lot of moving pieces. I'm really excited about the work and we're really taking our time in that, you know, making sure we all are thinking about equity in this and making sure, you know, our partners don't have systems that also bring about barriers and that they're thinking about ways that high quality looks different in other communities. And so I think as much as we want to go fast, we need to go slow. Also, I think a key to our implementation is realizing that COVID has really devastated the community. And I think people are fatigued. Yeah. So even though from the outside, it looks like, gosh, this is an amazing opportunity. It might look like a burden regardless of how many burdens we take down. We need to build trust, build relationship with the provider community so that they want to join in. I mean, so there's some work and repair, I think, that has to be done to make sure they can trust us to do this work. And that provider community, I guess talk a little bit more about it because it really is designed to be a network of these aren't necessarily just going to be preschool classrooms that are housed in school buildings. They're going to be community providers, home-based providers, a range of providers with lots of different perspectives and experiences as part of the, like, that's how I'm thinking of the provider network that's being developed. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is very accurate. And I think what makes us unique is that we're really focusing on family child care. I mean, because family child care represents that opportunity to serve diverse communities. And so if we design a system, it has to include them. It also has to include child care centers, school districts, Head Starts. And what we're saying is we really want families to figure out what setting works best for them. It shouldn't really matter what door they come in. It should be the experience that they're looking for, and they should be able to find what meets their needs. So that's what we're designing different kind of supports within our system in normal County. Like, what does it look like to contract with a school district versus it's very different to contract with a small family child care provider it has maybe six children. We need to interact with those systems differently. There's not a one-size-fits-all kind of support for that. 
So we really thought intentionally about what do we need to design and think about to make sure that all of those ways are successful and families can really have their needs met. You know, one family needs to go to the school that their school age goes to and want to take their younger preschooler to that setting. Another mom who works night shift needs someone that's offering preschool in the evenings. You know, what does that look like? And that's family childcare. Right. There's no centers that are really doing that kind of work. How do you think about this connection like this? Maybe it's part of its terminology, but preschool and childcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're interconnected, right? So how do you think about that? You know, I always grin when I say this is not people say this is not childcare. I get what they're trying to say, but I think for someone who had been a practitioner for many, many years, it is childcare. Most families are using preschool because they need to go to work, right? So that's one aspect of this. So when they're in that setting, everything that they do is early learning, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think sometimes we need to get out of our way and get rid of those terms because preschool just means the space that the child is in before they go to K-12, right? (laughs) So you know, we get pushed back because people really have a thought about what the term child care means and what preschool means. It's all early learning. It's all social emotional development. It's all prepping for another space. And so what do we do while they're there to get them ready? What do we talk to parents about while they're there? Are they giving conferences? What does a conference mean? So I think really unpacking terms and, you know, not getting in our way with a term is going to help us go a long way in this. Yeah. But yes, Preschool is childcare for people that don't know. For most people, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, you know, preschool for all focused on three and four-year-olds. There's still the question of what could we be doing for birth to three? That's a different right. question. But on the terminology side of things, you've mentioned quality a couple of times. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, mm-hmm. what does that look like? What are you struggling with? What are the questions that are coming up when you think about quality or wanting to have standards for quality, and then knowing that that might look different when you have home-based providers versus school-based providers and just a range of different settings. Right. I think that is a very interesting question because in the work I did with quality, it's called quality rating and improvement, now quality recognition and improvement is, you know, again, that earlier question about what does a family want and what do they say quality is? And then there are like well, what do we know in the field you know, of early learning? What are the skills that children need? And does it look like filling out worksheets? I would say from my perspective, no. It's about getting some small motor skills and what are the toys and what are the things that they need in the space to get at that. And it can look different, but be the same, right. you know, as far as outcome goes. And so I think what we're going to do is, you know, look at what are the existing tools to measure that? And where are there places where we think equity is an issue in some of those tools? And we've learned from states like Washington and their quality rate improvement. They really kind of blew that idea out of the water. You know, they did a lot of assessment and early learning environments and found that really a lot of those tools didn't speak to those ethnic communities. And then also, how do you have someone coach who's from a community that doesn't understand that? And so, you know, it's about what does the environment look like? What is the child getting? Like, what are the adult-child interactions right, look like? Right. Are the children about, have a safe space to go outside? Um, and maybe from your cultural perspective, you think that children shouldn't be going outside in the winter because you think they get a cold, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you coach that and really unpack, like, what are people's beliefs about different practices? But I think when we get to, like, what the standards are around that, it's about these high-quality, safe environments. And I know some people think that 
sounds like a little mini kindergarten classroom, right? In a space. And that's not what we're talking about. Right, right. It's, you know, children get to have their needs met, our families getting their needs met. And there are ways to quantify that. But I think we're trying to figure out what are the pieces that are foundational that we have to have. They will have to be licensed in our system. Okay. So that's one of the foundational pieces that will be there. Talk a little bit about the, you know, you mentioned that parents are often looking for places for their children to have safe, great environments to spend the day in because they need to go to work. This is part of the national conversation that's happening right now around childcare and preschool. And we've seen the early learning system, the childcare system, the preschool system really get devastated during the time of COVID-19 and really still is. Oregon and most counties, it's a childcare desert. Parents need places for their children to go. Are you thinking of childcare and preschool in that way as infrastructure? Oh, definitely. I'll say not to diminish the role of what medical professionals did during COVID, but when I would see, you know, all of the hero talk, I thought, what about these folks that are doing childcare still that never close? Yeah. Childcare had to be open for those folks to go to work. While I'm here, hats off to those folks that did that, you know, in the midst of not knowing where they were going to be sick and getting their families ill, still provided those services to those families and much needed. So it's definitely infrastructure. Back in my early years, there would be talks about, you know, virtual childcare strikes. Like what if today childcare stopped? Yeah. What would happen to our economy? I would imagine uh, it would slow things down quite a bit. We would be in trouble. So it's critical infrastructure. And I think that people need to think about it. Like if you thought about this in the way you thought about K-12, as infrastructure, you know, that builds future generations. This is the same thing at a younger age. And it's very well needed because people can't work without it. So the same way we offer to folks at K-12, we should be offering the same thing for those younger children. It's definitely critical infrastructure. I think we learned that really quickly when the pandemic, and that's one of the unfortunate blessings of the pandemic. It really showed us how critical it is, you know, so there's some blessings that came out of this tragedy as well. Right. Two things have been on my mind in terms of the rollout side of things, and I think you've Mm -hmm. touched on both of these a little bit, but it's the impact. There's an expanded need for more of an early childhood workforce, and then there's a need for expanded facilities to house the programs and make sure that we have access. So kind of these twin issues of workforce and facilities, I'd love to get your thoughts on maybe, maybe we start with workforce. Yeah, there's been questions about how preschool for all will impact workforce because we are saying that we're expectation is that these folks will be making a livable wage, not livable wage, but comparable to school district wages. I mean, and so what does that mean then for other preschool programs that may not be in preschool for all? And so we've had to think about what are the supports potentially for the infant toddler slots in that center and that other teacher that's in the very next room that isn't making that. And so what are some built-in supports for that? I think making this an attractive field earlier. So we've thought about what does it look like to introduce this at the high school setting? And maybe there's some pathways to some early certificates in that, CDAs, child development credentials. Albina Head Start has a great example of a program which they invited parents to participate as aides in classrooms, and they ended up with certificates at the end, which meant that they could then work potentially in a Head Start or maybe even, you know, in other places. So we really are going to work with them and find out what are ways that we can kind of expand that 
in the community because I think, again, we recognize that this is infrastructure. And I think it's work that's been disrespected. For my career, I've seen over time that there's been some community colleges in our community that don't promote that as a field, that have dropped their early learning certificates because they know that we weren't paying livable wages. And so it wasn't a viable option for them. So there's a lot. And one of the things that we really have to look at too is our communities that don't speak English as a first language, there's not a lot of training or pathways for them, even if they wanted to get an AA degree or something, what is the cohort for them, right? So there's a lot of pieces to it. And as we know right now with COVID, there are a lot of folks struggling to hire people, making this work more attractive where people can see themselves long-term. Also, the people that are leaving, how can they stay as a leader? Maybe they want to be one of our coaches. Maybe they're tired of working directly in the classroom, but what are the ways to retain people so that we build this leadership piece? Because that's another critical thing that we need for directors, coaches, system leaders, uh, especially system leaders of color. Because, you know, in my career, I haven't seen many folks of color outside of direct classroom experience in our state. And so we need pathways to build leadership as well. So workforce is a conundrum. (laughs) There's a lot of moving pieces. And I think that this year is going to be, that's going to be the difficult part is folks hiring staff to really do this work and do it well. Will recruiting a workforce, the fact that you're going to have to expand the early childhood workforce to make this work, is that going to be a barrier for rolling out preschool for all? I think it's going to take time. I mean, and we are working with the uh, ELD or we learn division at the state to talk about what are the things that we can do and look at bringing in assistance and age. Substitute pools is a big deal too. How are we asking folks to do more professional development, for example, and not have to work a 12 hour a day and then take a class afterwards? Is there a substitute pool available for them? Can they take time off? You know, so these are the things that burn people out that we need to really solve some problems around. And there are some new bright ideas in the state that they're trying out. And we hope to connect to that to kind of solve some of these issues. But there's a lot. This is hard work. I mean, most folks come in because they love children, but they find out it's a lot. It's a lot to do. Yeah. A lot to ask for low wage. Absolutely. The other question that we started talking about was facilities. Obviously, we need a space to house programs. And when we're thinking about expansion, that's going to be key. What are some of the things you're running up against with facilities right now? Yeah. Well, a lot of the feedback that we've heard over time is that it's just, this is probably for any business, right? But if someone wants to expand or even do a remodel of their own home and they're doing childcare, there's so many barriers and you have different bureaus that sometimes contradict one another. So one of the things is like, how do we have a clear path of like, if you want to do X, this is the path you go on. This is who you talk to. You need to talk to this person at the state level, the county, you know, all of those things. So really one of the key investments we're looking into supporting is a childcare navigator position. And so there was a proposal that we're working on now to look at what that role could be to kind of really support folks that are wanting to expand. So that's one thing. And then really architects that specialize in this, um, because you can have an architect, but they not know how should a childcare facility be laid out? Like, should the bathroom be all the way on the other (laughs) end? Because the preschooler can't walk to the bathroom. So they have to have a staff member then walk them all the way to that bathroom. And then you have to maintain ratio in your classroom. I've lived that life. It's not one you want to do. You want to have a bathroom (laughs) right there in the classroom or right adjacent so you can supervise that child. So those are the kinds of things that people will invest and do beautiful spaces and find that, oh, I didn't put that in the right place. They don't have the people 
who they ask these questions to. So that's a part of it. Another thing is we're hoping to have a facilities fund. And so that facilities fund can help maybe a smaller provider that says, hey, I would like to remodel my basement or I need to add an egress window, you know, smaller projects. And then there's people that, gosh, you know, I'm moving away from family child care and I really want to have a child care center and I need a larger investment. What does it look like to support that? And then there's also school districts and stuff. And so there's a lot of people that have these infrastructure issues and we're looking to find ways to develop a system for them. And we'll have an outside contractor manage that part of the role. So that will be coming in the summer of this year. Okay. Facilities. Okay. I wanted to ask about the national developments at the federal level. We're anticipating the passage of build back better and assuming that comes through, we'll see an influx of federal dollars to Oregon. And what would the impact of that be on something like Preschool for All and your efforts? Right. You know, Preschool for All really is built upon community investments. So Head Start, OPK, Preschool Promise. So if you look at how our implementation is, it does hope that state dollars come to us. And so what I'm hoping will happen is, you know, as that money comes to our state, they'll look at Multnomah County as we're, because we're really trying to build some infrastructure around our system to support providers and families and that that money will funnel down to us to help us expand. But I think that's what it'll look like. Right now, we just don't know. I mean, but we are in communication with folks at the state who are watching this closely. If you look at the tax that we're collecting, it builds upon other investments to our community as those other slots come we want to be the ones that implement that because we really are looking at system building, not just giving out slots, but what does the system need to do to support families and children and providers in the community? Right. And I don't want to let it go that the passage of Preschool for All, it was a remarkable effort and it's gotten tremendous national attention. It's really a one of a kind program. Do you want to say more about that or how does it feel to be now at the helm? It feels pretty amazing. I mean, I will say that when the measure passed, I thought, oh my goodness, we did this. And people started saying, you should be the one. I was like, me? (laughs) Right. Um, But the more I thought about it, I've done so many pieces of this work that it it does make sense. But I think really this idea of of equity at the forefront of it and really uh, making sure all the parties are supported in a way that is different and that we impose quality standards in a way that don't support all of our community. And so really taking our time, and I know the thing is going to be universal, we have to implement this in a way that doesn't cause harm to community, right? right? And so we want mm-hmm. to make sure folks, are, their voices are heard. We have an advisory um, council that will be making sure our feet are held to the fire, right? Yeah. Provider voice is always there. And we're willing to say, okay, Maybe this part of the implementation needs to be changed a bit. We're willing and are nimble and flexible enough to do a lot of that right? because we don't know what every community needs. I have an inkling because I work with providers for a long time and know what my own needs are, but I don't know all the things. And as we're implementing it, I try to like do something widespread. Sometimes you'll have to like this part of it works for this community and does not work for them. And being able to tell the community that, we're doing this differently and this is why. This really supports this community and it's not going to look the same over here. At the end of the day, we're still going to have folks that are supported and ready for kindergarten, which is another aspect of this. But I'll say the team that I'm building, amazing people. I tell you, 
cream of the crop folks. You know, I probably stole some people from other agencies and probably loaded that at But this was a dream opportunity, not just for me, but for many folks. And so I've got an amazing group of diverse staff from many walks of life. And it's just amazing to have them here. And they really care about this work. It's not just academic for them. We take time when we talk about equity and how it affects our work and how we need to show up in that work and be open and listen to folks' feedback. Yeah. And when we're making a mistake, we need to be ready to change that. I want you to look out a few years where mm-hmm. we're in a place where we've got more slots, we've got universal preschool is happening at the county level. Give us a vision for what that looks like. What's the impact on children and families? What's the change in the county and in the city of Portland? What's that going to look like? I think a lot of pressure is put on families, right? Not just economically, but like I would hear families that say, I have a baby. I don't know who to call first. I don't know. You know, I hope to be like a beacon of light for them and have some guidance around that. So I think that will be a change. I think we'll also see a change in which providers feel like they can actually operate their business they can retire, they can offer benefits to their staff. I mean, as a real thriving small business that provides early learning that is responsive to community, the childcare desert thing is a big thing too. So what does it look like to have preschool and you're not having to go miles away to get it? Bright, shining, new buildings that are accessible on bus lines that have odd hour care. We call it odd hour, you know, not the typical 8.30 to 3.30 days, but longer extended days. So really a network and a system. I used to call preschool and childcare the wild, wild west out here. It was just like <laughs> all families for themselves. And that's not what we want anymore. We want to want a safety net for folks and, you know, a place to go to. They can get answers and feel supported. And one of the things I really want to say that I haven't spoke to is like, we have a problem where children are getting expelled and kicked out yeah. of early learning programs. And that is a big deal. And it's definitely an equity issue. We want to make sure those providers are supported that once they invite a child, into a preschool classroom that that child can stay there. Yeah. And we have supports that really support them in doing that, regardless of whatever behavior that you feel is challenging. Now, I don't think children really have challenges. It's like adults experience their behavior is challenging, right. not they have challenging behaviors. But how do we change your mindset on what you see that that behavior is actually communicating something that you may need to do differently or connect with the family and find out what resources they might need? So I'm really wanting to see that child be successful, feel like they're seen in that space, that they're culturally affirmed in that space, that their families feel like they are empowered to them when they go to this larger system of K-12, know how to advocate for themselves and their child. This is an opportunity to do that for them as well. So I see a utopia that may not exist, (laughs) but I really think that we can work hard to make this work in a way that it hasn't worked at all. It shouldn't be the wild, wild west for families, that's for sure. (laughs) A utopia that may not exist, but that you're clearly working toward. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was great talking with you. It was nice talking with you as well. Take care. This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. 
You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening!